0: Well, in Revelation 21, verse 5, it says this, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I think that is just a beautiful verse. As Christians, I think that we need to really realize that this is what our hope is in. And on the flip side of it, we also have to realize that this eternity in some ways has already begun. Kind of what you were saying there, it's the same thing. It would be easy for us to say, hey, we've already made it. Jesus died on the cross, he's made you a new creation, and therefore it's fulfilled. However, even the new creation God has made us is only a picture, a sample, a a foretaste Of what's going to happen when the corruptible becomes incorruptible. When the mortal puts on immortality, as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. And so, he's given us these tastes. But ultimately, the fulfillment of all of what we have hoped for is right here. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. We see that there was a new heaven, a new earth. Now, by the way, that new heaven that we saw earlier, that word, um, it's almost like the waters of the sky. And we're going to just, I want to point that out because it's going to come back towards the end here. So at the very first part of this chapter, we see that there's a mention of that, that there was no sea. And we talked about there'd be no need for it. Some think as well that no sea means no warring, because sometimes we see battles and fights and uh, armies coming like seas against you. Both, I think, are, are probably true there. But in some ways, I do think it's important for you to realize that we're not waiting for eternity now. You are in it now. You are already there because death has no power over you now, as long as you are in Christ Jesus. If you're not, then that statement is not for you. But remember, Jesus said this. He said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That comes from 2 Corinthians 5.17. And so, don't lose in your heavenly focusedness the earthly focus of this truth here right now. We have so much to be thankful for. I was uh, talking here, Cameron, too, about the angels. The angels that Peter says long to look into the gospel. We have such a precious gift. And it's so easy for us to go and live our day-to-day lives without recognizing what He has already done for you. Don't do that. Every day we ought to give Him thanks that He has made us a new creation, that He has provided uh, a way for us to, to not be condemned in the filthiness of our life. And so just... Meditate on that a little bit before we get going too far into this. I'm going to discuss more of this in great detail during Tabernacles. At Sukkot, one of the messages I'm going to be giving is this message called Saint or Sinner. And it is one of the most life changing truths that I have experienced in my 52 years. And I think it's very important for people to hear that. And so, because I'm going to talk about it then, I'm not going to go into detail now, but just look forward to that at Sukkot. Verse 6 says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountains of water ...of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things... ...and I will be his God and he shall be my son. There is so much in there. First of all, it is done. Technically that it is in the plural in the Greek there. It's almost like saying they is done. It's all done. Everything. Not just one thing, not just the the cross but everything is finished. The whole plan of salvation, the new new heavens, the new earth. He is the beginning. He is the end. We're going to talk about this towards the end as well. And if you listen to Daniel Joseph's message today, it goes right along with that. You know, Jesus says, I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is yet to come. And you cannot understand Revelation fully without understanding Genesis in the very beginning because he is the beginning he is the Logos the word the light and here at the end he is the word the Logos the the light as we'll see further in this evening but I love that I will give you or give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts so we have the water of the skies. Now we have the water of life. Um, basically, chayim mayim, living waters. Take note of that because we're going to see at the close of this chapter another waters. But also, he's going to give freely. But not just to everybody. But freely to him who thirsts. And that's a big part of what I want to kind of be a takeaway for tonight's message is we should thirst. And I think that much of Christianity does not thirst for those living waters, for, for Jesus, Yeshua. And the question becomes: how do we how do we get that thirst? You know, I grew up in the Lutheran church and One of the big things, I mean, anybody that goes to to college to learn for Lutheran school teaching or a pastor, they'll study uh, Martin Luther and Walther's law and gospel. And there was a lot of really good things in there. And the whole foundation of what was taught was the law makes you thirst for the gospel. And without the law, you'll never thirst for that gospel. Somehow, I frankly think the Lutheran church lost its way and forgot that. And it, as most other churches, became so focused on grace without law that we lost our thirst. I've seen many of you guys here in this group as we have gone back and looked deeper into the Old Testament, and the New Testament as one book rather than two separate books, develop a thirst for those living waters. And I think that that is what is missing in Christianity today, is that thirst. If you don't know there's a problem, you're not going to look for the solution. And the law reveals that to us. And even though we are in Christ Jesus and we no longer are condemned by the sins of our lives, there is absolutely no question you need the law of God. Not for salvation, but as that mirror to reflect and to show to you your shortcomings. And when you recognize those, as Jesus said, the man who has been forgiven much will love much. But you need to know the bad news before you can understand the good. Without the law and our breaking of it, we have no need for a Savior didn't. You're right. No need for a Savior without the law. But he who overcomes, and I think we all know that the only way to overcome is through the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. Faith in Jesus Christ. And so, it's not your works that can allow you to overcome. It's not even the law that will cause you to overcome. The law will make you thirst for what does make you an overcomer. But it says, you'll inherit all things. I love that. You inherit everything. The kingdom is yours. This isn't one of those things, you know, in the Old Testament, you you go to the kings and the king said, whatever your request is, up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. No, he says, you get it all. You inherit the entire kingdom of heaven. I can't even imagine that. Exactly. Scripture says that. We are not, not just heirs, but co-heirs with Christ. It is. Like we were saying last week, you're already seated with Him in the heavenly realms. I mean, we could talk on this one thing for a month. There's so much there. But this is just another one. Highlight that to meditate on that this week. And it says, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. I've often said you cannot understand the book of Revelation completely without really understanding the biblical festivals. Again, one of the things, the shortcomings of modern day Christianity is we have gotten rid of those festivals, calling them Jews, Jewish festivals, rather than biblical festivals, or as the Bible calls them, the Lord's festivals. These are all about him. They're all about Jesus, Yeshua. And this is constantly taking us back to these festivals, the book of Revelation does. Here is one little spot as well. Any Jew that would read, and I will be his God, and he who shall be my son, is going to remember Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, talking about Passover. Passover was a picture of redemption by the Lamb of God, and we're going to talk more about this later too as well, but we often picture a Passover cross, that's it. But no, the parallels are incredible. Where even the Jews, what they see in Passover, what they write in their writings is incredible. To, to show it as a messianic picture. We'll maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later, but just a, a little taste of it. The Jews record that There was somebody that went to Pharaoh and said that a son had been born that was going to be king. And so Pharaoh made a decree to go and kill all these baby boys. Now, the Bible says that Pharaoh made that decree. It doesn't say that somebody came to him, but that's what the Jews record happened. But yet God will bring a deliverer and deliverance. So that he leads them out of Egypt, away from this Antichrist figure of Pharaoh. Through the crossing of a Red Sea. And as they do, they will even plunder. You're going to see that very same picture as we continue in this chapter here as well. We saw the same picture with Herod. Okay, Where does jesus go egypt and when he comes back it says so that might be fulfilled out of egypt i called my son a clear picture of the exodus that yeshua even gave us a picture of and here you have been brought out of the worldly egypt plundering the nations having been redeemed. And so these are not just words to gloss over, I will be his God and she shall be my son, because that is really almost a direct quote from Exodus 6, 6, and 7, when he says that the four cups of Passover, the fourth cup is, I will be your God and you will be my people. So any Jew reading this would have their minds taken to Passover the final completion of Passover, the fourth cup. So, it is possible as well that all of this is going to take place right after the seventh bowl judgment. Now, what I mean by that is, we know that the seventh bowl judgment, it's done, it's over. I mean, it's all wiped out. But then you have kind of, you've got this millennial reign, you've got after the millennial reign, the new heavens and the new earth. Well, because you're going to need one because at the seventh trumpet or the seventh bowl, the first one's destroyed. Well, how are you having people in the millennial reign living on an earth if it's been completely destroyed? So, I don't know clearly myself the timing, but it almost seems like maybe all of that is going on at that time period of the seventh trumpet. I, I don't know but I do know it says that the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done in Revelation 16 verse 17. And here he says, it is done. So there's some connection there. Like I said, I don't understand all of it, but it's important to see that connection. Now, this fountain of water that he mentions here is a tabernacle theme as well during the feast of tabernacles sukkot as we are going to be studying more here in just a few short weeks you're going to see that the feast of tabernacles is indeed a celebration of this right here he At tabernacles, Yeshua calls himself the living waters. He says, if anyone thirsts, come to me, and I will give him living waters. And now you have this. Any Jewish reader is going to be thinking of the Feast of Tabernacles when they read this. This should take you back to John 5 through 8 at the Feast of Tabernacles in the New Testament when Jesus was celebrating it. This is what he was pointing to. Yes, there's an aspect that right now we have access to the living waters. Just like right now you are a new creation. But there is a final fulfillment that's going to be ultimate here in chapter 21. That's what it's all pointing us to. Let me just show you a few scripture verses Isaiah 55:1. come all you who are thirsty come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without cost all who are thirsty come to the waters you don't need money it's free basically yeah. buy with no money that means it's free. John 4, 10 and 14, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, this is, by the way, the woman at the well. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is all taking place just right at the time of tabernacles, Sukkot. John 7, again, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Sukkot is seven days with an eighth day tagged on. That eighth day is the last and greatest feast day. It is on that day Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Everything is pointing to tabernacles. So as we're getting ready to celebrate tabernacles, this is what you're getting ready to actually partake of. Tabernacles is a rehearsal a dress rehearsal for the real thing that's coming. And it is on that last and greatest, the eighth day that this takes place. Isn't that interesting? Because we've talked many times in this study about the seven. Even the millennial reign seems to be that seventh day of creation pattern. But what happens after the millennial reign? Day eight. Eternal life. In eternity. You see, eighth is the one that basically, it comes after the completion and goes on to eternity. The the Jews see it that way. And so they see this as the eighth day of creation. And that's why it is on the last and greatest or eighth day of the feast, he is proclaiming, to be the living waters and here what seems to be the eighth and greatest day of eternity he is talking about living waters again without the festivals i guess make something up revelation 21 verse 8 continues we see those who are thirsty those who who want and desire Christ, those living waters, they can have it at no cost. But then there's another group of people the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We might just say eternal damnation and hell. See, during the millennial reign, we had these people who really didn't get it, that they have to come up and worship God to get rain. I don't understand all of the details there, but we know that all the godly are in Jerusalem having a hoopah over them, but the ungodly are still out there, but they still have to bow their knee to God. Because He has authority and dominion. They don't. Okay? So... Just like today, there are many in politics who think they have authority, who think that they're in charge. They don't. They too will bow at the name of Jesus. We could look at each one of these, but first of all, cowardly. The top of the list. We don't often think about these words when they're all combined in a list of things. It's just, yeah, you know, ungodliness. It's important to kind of dissect that a little bit. You know, a coward isn't somebody who's just overcome with fear and freezes up. A coward is somebody who knows what to do and doesn't do it. A a a coward is, you know... uh, cheating and, and going behind somebody's back to, to get revenge or you know not going face to face or, or any of those kinds of things. I think there's a lot of people who have not given their life over completely to the Lord Jesus because they are cowards. They know it's true. The devil knows Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. But he was a coward. I think there are many people I know personally who are ashamed of Jesus. They want him, but they can't bring themselves to live a life worthy of the calling, as scripture says. Because, well, I might look weird. You know, people are going to think that you're funny and then. People aren't going to listen to you or whatever the case might be. One of the greatest things, I think, of the Jews, and God always called them to be, was a separate people. And in Corinthians, I think, chapter 3, maybe it calls us, it says, be ye separate. You're not supposed to look like the world. You're not supposed to do the same things the world does, celebrate the same holidays, watch the same movies. You're supposed to be different. But are we too much of cowards to stand apart from the rest of the world? To, to not blend in? Are you embarrassed? I know that I have been an embarrassment to my family many times. And I don't just mean my wife and kids. I mean my extended family. And I think maybe sometimes I've taken it a little far, possibly. Maybe not. I don't know. When I think of this, I can't help but think of a guy, a friend of mine named Kevin Pulver. Some of you might know him. Kevin Pulver would go out on the streets in Kennesaw and evangelize. Now, I didn't necessarily agree with his style. I did it differently than he did. But I can tell you one thing, that man never told a lie with what he was saying. He always spoke truth, scriptural truth. And because of that, he had my support. (coughs) It would have been embarrassing for him to be related to you in many cases. It would have been embarrassing for you to, to even say that he's a friend of mine. It would have been embarrassing for for you to be next to him while he was evangelizing. But let me tell you something, that man was anything but a coward. He didn't blend in, I'll tell you that much. But he loved Jesus and he loved people and he he loved them enough to be honest with them to tell them that they were sinning. Yeah, he is still alive. He just moved from here. He's not around here. Yeah. So, Kevin, if you're listening, thank you. First uh, Corinthians 6, 9-10 says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Guys, if you think you really believe that the wicked and the ungodly your loved ones that you all know are not going to inherit the kingdom of God but the lake which burns with fire and brimstone then what is it going to take if you believe that and we're still cowardly to witness to our own family what is it going to take maybe we just don't really believe that this isn't a reality enough in your life to say enough I don't care if they think I'm weird It goes on, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We don't have time to dissect each one of those, but the bottom line is sexually immoral and homosexuality here are even, you know, separated. Homosexuality is has always been and will always be an abomination in God's sight. And the practice of it and the tolerance of it is only bringing the destruction of this country, the destruction to families, the destruction of the churches, because we're too cowardly to stand up and say it is sin. We're too afraid that we might go to jail for hate speech, as some legitimately today are doing for speaking out against homosexuality. That day might be closer than you think for you. Are we going to be cowardly? Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I think we have believed the lie that holiness somehow comes through osmosis of going to church. Or holiness somehow just happens because you say, okay, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yep, yep, he's my savior. Yeah, comes from the water. You see, guys, holiness is something that we strive for holiness. Timothy talks about to labor and strive. For it. this isn't something that's going to come just because you read your Bible in the mornings or say your prayers at night this means you need to make a decision choose this day whom you will follow examine yourself and as I said as we're entering upon the period of Sukkot it is time for us to examine ourselves and to seek holiness because Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, do not misunderstand me in that, I'm putting out the disclaimer, that by doing good things, making right choices, that gets you to heaven. I'm not. I'm saying by being a Christian, God empowers you to make the right choices But you still have to be determined to say, yes, I want to make those choices. I'm not going to be a coward. I choose to live and chase after holiness. Without Christ, there is no way of entering heaven. We know that, but I have to say it. We have no way of attaining righteousness without him. The white clothes that are the wedding clothes in the parable, without them, Remember, you don't get in. How did you get in without wedding clothes? What is that wedding clothes? Holiness. That's what Revelation 19 told us. And the white linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. The things that you do. You will not get in without white linen. Holiness. Note that the cowardly and the unbelieving are two separate people here too. Like I said, what about believers who are cowardly? Because the devil is a believer. He believes in Jesus. There's no question about that. You could look at the disciples who at times were cowardly. Peter denied him three times. But the point is, is at the end, every single one of them were willing to go And die for him. Oh I'm sure they were fearful. Cowards are fearful. or You don't have to have. Just because you're fearful doesn't mean you're a coward. We have sorcery here. It's easy for us to think oh that doesn't apply to us today. It does. Sorcery is everywhere in the church today. It's everywhere in homes, Christian homes today. Witchcraft. It goes far beyond witchcraft because witchcraft has gotten its tentacles into just about all of culture. I was talking with some people here recently, and like Harry Potter. Harry Potter, Christians, I was at a Christian school, a Lutheran school, in Wisconsin, speaking in the class, and all of a sudden I see there's a Harry Potter book on every every desk. And I said, you shouldn't be reading this. This is witchcraft. It glorifies witchcraft. By the way, I haven't been back there to speak since. Uh, it It glorifies it. But what we do is we often say, oh, but there's white witchcraft. Oh, no, we don't really do that. Oh, we don't? What about, I mean, I'm really going to step on some toes here, but what about things like Star Wars? Okay, there's all kinds of sorcery that goes on. We might even say that, and now I'm going to, I'm just buckling, you know, I'm tightening them up here. What about maybe even the Christian ones, Narnia, Lord of the Rings? Have we allowed sorcery into Christian homes? What about things like Pokemon, trolls, all these other little things that we know have evil roots? Legos? Depends on which ones. (laughs) Point being is sorcery is everywhere. People who get out of Satan, uh, satanic worship or witchcraft or whatever, it's amazing how they see things in Christianity that puzzle them because it was stuff that they used, stuff that they believed in. I've talked to you before about uh, wreaths. And a friend of mine that used to be a witch, and she said, I couldn't believe you know, the wreaths. We used wreaths for spells and for for worshiping the devil. And yet, we don't see wreaths in the Bible. That's a pagan thing that has crept into the church. We could look at Easter and, and Christmas. Has sorcery and paganism crept in? Because we thought, oh no, no, we're going to take this pagan thing and we will christianize it make it for jesus yeah well yeah there's all kinds of examples of that about the environment wins over over people i mean we could go on to our examples upon examples upon examples but the point is is guys sukkot's coming this day is coming we need to be ready because you see after we have uh, before sukkot We've got the Day of Atonement. Before the Day of Atonement, you've got the Day of Trumpets. And we're going to talk about that. I'm hoping to finish Revelation so that we can talk about these things before Sukkot. That we look at trumpets. We look at atonement. This is a time of repentance. And you need to go, and I think each and every one of you need to go and look on your bookshelves, on your you know, movies, whether they be DVDs or whether they be on your computer or whether they be on your Netflix, or maybe you shouldn't even have Netflix. I don't know. Whatever it is, examine your heart. Examine your tent. Examine your tabernacle, and you need to clean house. Idolaters, putting anything above God. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's your family. It could be good things. Liars. Liars. I think we've all told lies, but this is some a habitual liar. Okay, murderers. Remember, Jesus says if you've had hate in your heart, you've murdered your brother. Uh, do you have hate towards somebody? Are you not able to forgive somebody? Unforgiveness. All kinds of things like that are in this list. One more thing on this cowardly Mark 8:38. for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. We should never be ashamed of truth. Truth is something worth standing up for even if it makes you look like an idiot. Even if you are the only one in a room of a thousand people, you stand on truth. Verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now again, just as I said before, maybe the timing of this with the seventh bowl, now we're being introduced to this guy again. One of the angels who had the seven bowls, the final one that he poured out, the seven last plagues. Now, either that, you know, this could be a time marker, as I mentioned earlier, or perhaps the seventh bowl comes after the millennial reign, or it could just also be that the angel here, there's there's this parallel that's going on, because John is here shown the the church. The wedding banquet of the Lamb has already taken place. This is the bride that He has shown. But if you go back to Revelation chapter 17, verse 1, it opened up and it said, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, basically. It, It almost says the exact same thing. But what's going on in chapter 17 was a destruction of the whore, the harlot, the the city of Babylon. And so there's a contrast here with the destruction of the whore and now the reward of the bride, the righteous woman and the unrighteous woman. And so I think there's a good reason that this is brought up here at this time, at the very minimum. Verse 10, this angel, he says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Ezekiel here in chapter 40, verse 2, is basically showing the same vision. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel. That's where this is at, Jerusalem, right? Set me on a very high mountain. Here, John was at a great and high mountain. On whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. And here, that's what we're going to be seeing. He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. And you will also see the same thing going on here in the verses coming up. Um, this mountain is interesting in that it seems to, to be Christ on one hand but also it, it tells us in verse 9 that this is the bride of Christ her light is our light notice that her light What? who's her? the bride the church you, your light, was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone clear as crystal. The light is going to come from you. And I can't help but think of Genesis here. I grew up my whole life thinking that Adam and Eve were you know, butt naked in the garden. In every picture we see, they're covering themselves up, you know, nicely before the fall, the artist covers them up nicely for our sake. But Adam and Eve could look at each other in nakedness and think nothing of it. I don't think that's the case. I I think I've shared this before, but I think it's very appropriate for this here now. The light is coming from a precious stone as well. We're going to talk about that, but In Genesis 2.25, before they fall into sin, it says they they were naked and not ashamed. There's going to be no shame here in Revelation 21. That word naked is arom in Hebrew. But then you jump ahead and the fall takes place in Genesis 3.7, and also it's mentioned in 3.10 that Adam and Eve are now naked, but the Hebrew word there is now erom. Same form, but slightly different. Same root, but a different form of it. Arom means partly covered. Arom, partly covered. Arom, absolutely naked. You know, the Bible tells us that God clothes himself with light as with a garment. God is light. We're going to talk about that more coming up as well. Daniel Joseph did as well today. You were created in the image of God. I believe you were created in that same glory, clothed with the same glory. And now here in Revelation 21, you are the light of this city. There is no sun. Now, we also see that the Lamb is going to be the light, but that makes sense because you are in Christ, Christ is in you, you are co-heirs, all of these things. I think in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were bright, bright lights until the fall. And when the fall came, that glory departed, and now they could see the nakedness. We'll talk more about this when we go through the tabernacle at Tabernacles. Remember, the brightness comes from the stone. While you were watching, it says here in Daniel 2, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay. And you know the story. This rock comes and destroys this image that represents all these nations of the world, these powerful nations and then this rock grows to be this huge mountain, and that rock is Christ. It was the rock that followed the Israelites through the desert from whom they drank living water from. Here in the context of thirst, we're seeing this precious stone, a rock, being there as well in the city. It gets better though. Isaiah 60. Again, something that hasn't happened yet. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. The light is the glory of God. When you have His glory, you will be light. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people, but the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears. Over you. Ezekiel also wrote, I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when I came to, de- to destroy the city. But the land was radiant with his glory. It's a little picture of what this is going to be like. But nonetheless, that rock, I believe, is Jesus. And you. Because her light, in verse 9, said, that's you, the bride. The bride gives light. We often think of Jesus being the light in the new Jerusalem, but we miss that fact that so are you. Because you have his glory, just like Adam and Eve did. Verse 12, also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, Twelve angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. Well, now we're seeing the heavenly tabernacle, which is the fulfillment of what the earthly tabernacle was supposed to be. Hebrews 8.5 says that they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. So what you see in the tabernacle that we'll study at tabernacles is a picture of what you're reading now in Revelation. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. It's kind of an unusual order given here. It starts at east. It doesn't start at north. East, moving counterclockwise. Um, can't say for sure why, but it's interesting that if you remember, the priest wore a breastplate. There were 12 stones in the breastplate of the priest. And each stone represented 12, or one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And on there, we see that the east made up the very top row. The, the tribes that camped east of the tabernacle made up the top row. And then the north was the bottom row. And then the other two were in between. So whether it starts there for that reason, I don't know. But it's there for a reason. Um, it, yeah, it, it does go in order on the it doesn't go one, two, three, four. So the book of Numbers tells us when they were in the wilderness that these tribes were to camp north, south, east and west of the tabernacle. So I've shown you this before but each tent is like an icon for a certain number of Israelites because it also tells us in the book of Numbers how many people were in each tribe. So you can add up those numbers and see how many there were. And you can see that it's a very similar amount on both sides, but on the top and bottom, top is less, bottom is most, so it would look like this, flying over the tabernacle. (coughs) I wonder if that's what it'll be like in heaven as well. Don't know. But, we read in Ezekiel, These will be the exits of the city beginning on the north side, which is 4,500 cubits long. The gate of the city will be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates on the north side will be the gates of Reuben, Judah, and Levi. On the east, Joseph, Benjamin, and Dan. On the south, Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulun. And then on the west, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. So, this is how they camped. And this is what we're seeing in Ezekiel. That's what you're going to see in heaven. What tribe are you? Don't know. But you will be assigned one. Verse 14, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. Okay, so 12 foundations, one for each of the apostles of Christ here. It says, on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I know we could talk about, is Judas going to be one? No. How about Matthias? I don't think so. I think it's going to be Paul. It seems that Matthias was one that man chose. Man said, oh, we've got to replace Judas, because it's written you know that you know he's numbered with the transgressors. We're, we're going to replace him. Who should we got? Well, let's see. You guys are all good you know, godly candidates. We're going to narrow it down. Let's take you two. All right, now let's go cast lots. They cast lots, and it said, all right, Matthias gets it. But that was all man's doing. Shortly after that, We see God coming and calling Paul. And by the way, you never hear of Matthias ever again. But who knows? Nonetheless, the twelve apostles. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. When you're putting that in perspective of this new Jerusalem, this city coming down, it makes it a little bit uh, more precious. Speaking of Abraham, the author of Hebrews said, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This is not a new concept. The Jews believed that there would be a great, huge city of Jerusalem. Not like the one today. How did they know this stuff? They didn't have revelation. Well, just to point this out in case you missed it. These 12 foundations are the, for the 12 apostles. The gates were for the tribes. So there's two separate things. Twelve gates for the twelve tribes, twelve foundations for the twelve apostles. Verse 15, And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. Remember we just looked at Ezekiel? Same thing, I was talking about the high mountain, and then he goes to measure it. So that's what's happening here. He who talked with me is this angel who had the seven plagues, the last of the plagues. He goes and measures it. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. In other words, it's a cube. Now, this is kind of cool to me. Remember, in the tabernacle, inside the most holy place... It was a perfect cube. That tells us that that is a picture of the New Jerusalem. We'll talk more about that at Tabernacles. But that was the dwelling place of God, the mercy seat. It was called the Mishkan. Over the gates of the city are engraved the tribes that you're going to enter through the 12 tribes, the priest that went into the most holy place had the 12 tribes engraved on these precious stones. Okay, All of that of the tabernacle was pointing to a literal fulfillment in Revelation 21. When Ezekiel sees these walls being measured in Ezekiel 40 verse 3, it's it's similar as we just saw. We see Zechariah also saw an angel measuring Jerusalem. He says, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. Zechariah 2.2. So even this is not unusual. Because the Jerusalem that they were measuring wasn't the one that you and I know of today. Or that they knew of. Now, John was given the job to measure the temple in Revelation 11. If you look back at Revelation 11, it says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And he goes and he measures the city of Jerusalem, the earthly one. Now the angel measures the heavenly one. Um there are so many parallels here and I don't have time to get into all of it. So I'm going to kind of focus on the the size of this. It's slightly different depending on the version that you read. The ESV and the NIV says that it's 12,000 stadia. A lot of the other ones here, like the King James, will have furlongs. The difference is about 100 miles so it was either 1,400 miles or 1,500 miles roughly depending on which version you're using i guess regardless it's huge this means that the new jerusalem will be larger than india two over two point five million square miles on just one level. Keep in mind it's fourteen or fifteen hundred miles high as well. That goes beyond Earth's atmosphere as we know it today into space. What is that compared to the total land area on Earth today? I'll show you here in a second coming up. If you if you built this as a building, as far as height goes, with every story being 12 feet tall, the building would have 600,000 stories. So, feast on that, Trump. It doesn't compare. Here is a picture I stole off the Internet here. Of a cube showing you the size compared to earth. If you would be standing next to it. You could not see the top of it. At 5,000 miles away. If you stood 5,000 miles away from this cube. It would appear more than 130 times larger than the moon. Yes. So. Pretty impressive. Um, well, this made me feel a little bit better because that means it's not going to be overcrowded. All right. Only 144,000 get in. Yeah, right. So here is the picture showing you if this would be 1,500 miles overlapped on the United States. Now, here's the part that just amazes me again. How do these rabbis get this? This is what it says in in rabbinic literature. In the olam haba, which is simply the, the end times, Jerusalem shall be so enlarged as to reach to the gates of Damascus, yes, to the throne of glory. Now, it's even bigger than what they said, but it just amazes me. Where did they get this stuff? They didn't have revelation. And I could give you just about everything. I could give you something where they're saying it. God was speaking to him in some way. Anyway, um, like I said, ground level, just the ground level alone, over 2 million square miles, that's 40 times bigger than England, or to put it in perspective of acres for you farmers, 1,280,000,000 acres. One level. I yeah I can have this ocean from over here. Yeah. There is no ocean, remember? Yeah. <laughs> um, here it is placed over Jerusalem since Jerusalem is where this seems to be going to be placed. The rabbis say in the Olam Haba again uh, the Damascus is in quite a bit from that, so even though it's very large, they, they still missed it. But I find it interesting, yeah you did, I find it interesting that when the Bible talks about like in Isaiah 19 and others talking about Edom and Assyria and all of these places and the people coming from there, and you see that it goes down into Egypt, it goes down into Syria, I don't know what that means, if anything. But it's just interesting that those are covered with this. But that's a big city, folks. Verse 17, then he measured its walls 144 cubits according to the measure of man, that is, of an angel. It seems to be saying that this is literal. It's the measurement of a man. 144 cubits is about 200 feet, depending on the cubit. That's the lower end of the cubit there. And it says that the construction of its wall was of jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The gold is pure and clear. I mentioned before that the astronauts, when they went into space, they had pure gold on their visors and it's transparent as you look through it in its pure form. I'm going to get to some of that in a moment here. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper and sapphire uh, and all these lists of them then. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. The rabbis are going to talk about these pearls too, by the way. I'll give you that in a moment. Right now, since I'm running out of time, remember the breastplate of the priest had 12 stones on it. You might think, oh, this is just symbolic. No, it is not symbolic. This is literal truth. Moses, when he went up on the mountain, it says, Moses and the 70 elders of Israel went up on the mountain, and they saw, it says, under his feet, the the God, the glory of the God of Israel, under his feet was something like a pavement made... Like the or clear as the sky itself. Moses saw this. He was seeing a glimpse into heaven. But this new Jerusalem, heaven in a sense, is coming down to earth. The Lord's prayer, as it is in heaven. Right, guys. Heaven is coming to earth someday. This is kind of neat about these stones. You got 12 stones listed. There are two different types of stones. um, Anisotropic and isotropic. Now, the fascinating thing is if you take a polarized filter and you stick these under a a magnifying or a a microscope and you turn the, the polarized filter Isotropic stones give off a brilliant, beautiful light. The other ones appear gray, dark, and bland, ugly. These are actual pictures here of these gems with that polarized filter. It just so happens that the stones in the foundation of Jerusalem, all are isotropic stones. How did God know that? How did the Bible know, hey, we're only going to take these stones that are like, wow, versus those that aren't? Pretty cool. As far as the stones go here. Um, just to give you an idea, this is again kind of how they're going to be camped around the, the gate and how the stones were arranged. Um, just like I said, slightly not going in a, a perfect counterclockwise thing on the thing, but you can see the tribes how they camped and what it's going to be like on the gates of New Jerusalem are the same. Um, it's no accident that the Garden of Eden... Had these same stones either? Look what it says in Ezekiel twenty-eight thirteen: You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you: ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, and so on. So, the garden of Eden, again, a model of heaven. The, I've told you this joke before, but for those who weren't here, I always love the Reader's Digest thing where this guy dies, he goes up to St. Peter, and he brings a suitcase, and Peter says, you can't bring that in, and the guy says, no, I I had a deal with God. God said I could bring one suitcase of stuff, and he says, all right, well, I got to check it out, so he goes over, Peter goes over to God, he comes back, and Peter says, I guess you were right, this is a little unusual, but yeah, he said, you got to bring in one suitcase, but I'm supposed to look at what you brought. So Peter brings up the suitcase, he sticks it on the table, he opens it up, and he looks really confused. The guy across the table's got this big grin on his face, all as happy as could be. But Peter looks at him and he goes, I don't understand. He says, pavement? Why'd you bring pavement? Because the guy had brought in all these gold bars. What was so precious to him is nothing but pavement in heaven. You know, I told you the rabbis agree with John's vision here of the new Jerusalem and having the gates of pearls. This is what they say. Again, I don't know where they get it. The Holy One, blessed as He, will in the Olam Haba bring precious stones and pearls which are 30 cubits by 30 cubits and will cut out from them openings which are 10 cubits by 20 cubits and will set them up in the gates of Jerusalem. I just want to see that oyster. I'm going to close on this uh, prophetic picture. I'm not going to get done tonight, what I had hoped to, but real close. Zechariah 7.3 says this, Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Zechariah responded by making this question that was proposed to him, I should say, clear. He says that in the final days of redemption, that they hadn't come yet. that the Jerusalem that they were living in was not the Jerusalem that they were looking forward to. And his answer is this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The feasts of the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. God had promised to bring Israel into the promised land and to be their God. So it was part of the the Passover, the Exodus. But when all this happened, it was a little bit of a disappointment for them. And they realized, oh, we're we're waiting for something better. That was just a, a sign or a picture of the kingdom of God coming to earth, as I mentioned before. Since the temple had been rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity and the Jews were in their land again for a second time, is when they asked Zechariah this question. They knew the first time, that wasn't it. So now they're thinking, should I now mourn? I mean, is this, are we gonna be able to celebrate? Well, what's interesting about Zechariah's answer is the fourth, fifth, seventh, and 10th month, we don't even have festivals on all those months. That's not, doesn't really fit. But that's because there's history involved here. The fourth month, the fast of the fourth month, took place on the 17th of Tammuz. And that is the day the temple services ceased because of the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. The fifth month, the Jews always fast on the 9th of Av because that was the day that the temple was destroyed among other, not just the first, but the second temple as well. Then the seventh fast was when Gedaliah was killed and it ended the, Davidic rulership, and then the tenth fast, uh, tenth month fast, was the Babylonian siege uh, beginning. So, the four fasts are still, even to this day, observed by, you know, rabbinic Jews. All of these events were really bad days, somber remembrances for the Jews. But Zechariah was telling them there was a time coming where it would be an occasion for joy. In other words, he was saying when the Messiah comes, Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt as that eternal place, that promised land that you guys have been waiting for, and it will never again be overthrown. Those fast days that you consider as mourning and bad, somber events are going to be times of celebrations. So as long as these fast days are somber, you can be sure that the kingdom of God is only at hand, not fulfilled. And it's for this reason that we can pray, come Lord Jesus, come. But that's what Zechariah was talking about. That's what we look forward to. Um, I know. I'm going to call it quits. I wanted to... Um, Finished chapter 21 tonight, but I didn't quite make it. But you can see I was close. So we'll call that quits for now. Um, Just keep in mind for next week this light picture because I wanted to come full circle um, in that light in showing you Jesus there. But we'll pick up on that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for just, wow, what you've given us a foretaste of. I just can't wait. It's going to be amazing. And Lord, I just ask that you keep our eyes on you, not the city, not, not the gold streets, because really I don't care about that. What I care about is that the holiness, the righteousness, the, the presence and closeness we will be to you in ways that right now we only have a foretaste of. And so while we've seen a lot of the beauty Lord, you are the ultimate beauty, and we look forward to that day when there will be no more tear, no more suffering, no more loved ones that would be lost. And so, guard our hearts, and as we've talked about so many things of, of the heart here tonight, may you just bring us to repentance and reveal in our lives the things that need to be cleaned out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.